We're going to be in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, for our sermon today. Uh, we were in Romans 8 last week as well. And this week we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, which uh, always sort of seems like the pyrotechnic side of Christianity to talk about the Holy Spirit. You tend to think about miracles and gifts and other such things. Uh, but in this passage, which is one of the uh, most informative passages in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit, um, you have something that uh, is less pyrotechnic, uh, but extremely significant for us and our lives as Christians. The person who's probably taught me the most about the Holy Spirit in my life is not a very pyrotechnic personality at all. It's an inhibited, uh, soft-spoken English professor named J.I. Packer. And I know a lot of you have loved and benefited from his life and ministry as well. And he died this week. And so um, it's with thankfulness for his life that I was reading, again, a book of his called Keep in Step with the Spirit that talks about the themes that are in Romans 8. And he talks about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives uh, in that in three ways, things that he does. First is that he... Um, he connects us to God, connects us to Jesus Christ by coming to live within us so that the reality of that relationship is uh, made manifest in our lives. When little children say uh, they're accepting Jesus in their heart, uh, it's what Paul would say is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God uh, comes to live present with us. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to change us to become more and more like Jesus. And so he does the work of preparing us for heaven by transforming our character over a long period of time. And then the third thing he does is assure us of our security in the love of God, that uh, God is genuinely not angry with us any longer, is delighted with us and wants us in relationship with him. And the Holy Spirit works to convince us of these things. So these are the things that he does in his work and that we're going to think about today as we look at Romans 8, this middle section of it, um, that we have assurance in our relationship with God uh, because the Holy Spirit lives in us. So that's what we're going to think about. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll hear Romans 8. Father, please open our hearts and minds to you as we listen to your word. Uh, we ask that you would give us uh, connection to you and reality in our faith. And we ask in Jesus' name. The scripture reading today comes from Romans 8, verses 5 through 13. <clears throat> For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The word of the Lord. So what kind of mood is Paul in when he's writing this letter? And I don't mean is he grumpy or is he happy. I mean grammatically what kind of mood is Paul in in writing Romans 8. If you remember your moods from grammar class and English where you really stick to three moods, you have the indicative mood, which describes a fact, right? Um, work starts at seven o'clock uh, is in the indicative mood. The imperative mood, which is more of a command, you must be at work at seven o'clock. It's the imperative mood or the subjunctive mood is uh, I wish I could get to work at seven o'clock. It expresses hope or something hypothetical. Uh, but we're gonna talk about the indicative and the imperative today because in the Bible, it matters a lot uh, which one of those comes first. Does the indicative come first or the imperative come first in the Bible? Uh, that is, um, is the truth about the world and God and what he's done for us, does that come first or does what we do for God come first? And clearly it's the indicative that comes first, biblically. What God has done, who he is, uh, is the bedrock for our actions. So we base the imperatives of the Bible and what we ought to do on the indicatives of the Bible. Like the Ten Commandments say, I'm the Lord your God who's brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, indicative. Therefore, have no other gods before me and don't make any graven images, the imperatives. That's how it works biblically. Um, so Romans 8, the argument is this. You're not condemned because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You have been changed from your uh, original nature as someone who lived independently from God and rebellious against him into someone who's now back in relationship with God and at peace with him. You've been changed and the Holy Spirit lives in you and your future is certain. As sure as uh, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, so he will raise you from the dead, and you will live a life in the new creation that you were always intended to live. That's the indicative. The imperative is, now you can quit the things that are killing you. More and more, you can quit the things that are killing you in your life. More and more, you can not live as the old person that you were, and you can live as the new future person that you're going to be. So that's what we've got. The problem is in Romans 8, it seems like more than other passages, there's a temptation to get the indicative and the imperative backwards. To think of this not as a chapter about assurance that a Christian has because of what God has done for him and because the Holy Spirit lives in him, but rather to think of this as kind of an excursus in Paul's letter where he stops to talk about how to be good. Like here are the instructions for how to be good, or here's the secret formula for living a life above the fray of normal human struggle. If you, if you can get these things right, then you will live in some sort of a uh, victory. Like you'll live as if you were already 
completely fit for heaven. Um, or sometimes this passage has been used to say there's a contrast between like adequate Christians and inadequate Christians. You know, the uh, adequate Christians are spiritual and the in inadequate Christians are fleshly or carnal, we used to say. And basically here are the instructions to say, here's how you live as a good Christian instead of a failure Christian. And that's not what Romans 8 is talking about either. It's about assurance. It's about what God has done for you and in you. And there is some imperative that comes out of that. But the bulk of the passage is a message of assurance to you that you really are okay with God, that he really is delighted to live in you and have a relationship with you. And he really is going to fix you and really is going to bring you home to him. So that's what we're going to think about today. Um, first, let's look at the indicative, the uh, idea of our, our assurance before God. Who struggles with assurance? I mean, what kind of people worry about their standing with God and the reality of their relationship with him? Uh, some people never do. Um, people who just think, yep, I figure that's true. God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Um, never struggle at all with any kind of issues of assurance. And other people worry about assurance all the time. Uh, guilty conscience, the presence of death and decay, uh, make them think, oh, you know, if this is real at all, it's not real in me. Um, there's something defective in me. I can't really be a Christian. And you've probably got friends like that who wrestle all the time with uh, whether there's reality to their relationship with God or not. And uh, just ask you this, uh, who do you think worries the preacher more? The person who never worries about assurance or the person who constantly worries about assurance? Well, the person who constantly worries about assurance does not worry the preacher nearly as much as the person who never does. Um, person who constantly worries about assurance, I'm almost always sure is a Christian. Right, because non-Christians don't worry about their assurance. That's almost the certain sign of being a Christian is that you worry about assurance. Uh, the preacher worries about somebody whose conscience is indifferent, who uh, never notices the reasons that he actually has to worry and doubt all the time. So, because the Christian life provokes us to doubt. I mean, we still sin and we still die. And when you face these things with much honesty, you start to start to wonder, you know, is there reality in what I say is true of me and what I say I believe and what I say I'm committed to because it seems flimsy and it seems unreal a lot of the time. So Paul in this passage in Romans 8 gives us kind of two prongs of assurance. One is more objective and one's more subjective. The object we looked at last week where he says there's no condemnation for people who are Christians. If you put your trust in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross has taken away all of the threat of uh, your rebellious behavior against God and your attitudes and has brought you home to him permanently. Uh, because of the objective work that Jesus has done, you are safe in your relationship with God. Uh, and then in the passage we're looking at, he starts to talk more about the subjective side, which is, uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And obviously that is um, a lot more nebulous to us. It's, uh, you can't put it on graph paper and measure the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is spiritual and mystical, 
to us. And it has all the benefits and disadvantages of that. Uh, but it's what he says here. Um, the Holy Spirit's come to live in you. In verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in him or her. Uh, this is the fact of what God has done for us in the good news. Now, the Holy Spirit um, is God himself. If you've been around the church, you understand this, but you know here he's referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Uh, the word Trinity doesn't uh, appear in the New Testament, but we understand uh, the way that God describes himself, that he exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but is at the same time just one God. So the Holy Spirit is God himself, not an impersonal force, but a personal God who lives in us and has relationship with us, who makes Jesus Christ present to us in our lives. Um, so this is the promise that the Holy Spirit is in us. And this isn't conditional for some Christians and not others. It's, it's for all Christians. He says in verse 5, it's a little bit confusing the way my version translates it. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And it sounds very conditional. It's like if you happen to be one of the people who very uh, obediently lives according to the Spirit and really sets your mind on the things of the Spirit all the time, well, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. But if you don't, he doesn't. And that's not what verse 5 is saying. Um, it, the literal translation says, if you are according to the flesh, not if you live according to the flesh, if you are according to the flesh, this is what you inevitably do. You put your mind on the things of the flesh. But if you are in the spirit, related to God, the Holy Spirit, made a new person, then you inevitably set your mind on the things of the spirit. Um, and so then he says in verse 9, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit if you're a Christian, right? So this isn't saying uh, good Christians and bad Christians. This is saying non-Christians and Christians, uh, the distinction that he's making. Um, he uses the term flesh. Kind of, he makes these two categories, you know, for Christians and non-Christians. In the flesh, you know, Paul's complicated, but he's, he's used terms like uh, under the slavery and mastery of sin uh, to describe being a non-Christian, who you were before in the book of Romans. Here he says, in the flesh, not meaning in the body, but meaning uh, the flesh is your whole uh, nature that is uh, determined to live independently of God. It's who we all are as we're born. You know, I, as one of Paul's categories is in Adam, that as uh, the offspring of Adam, we find ourselves naturally biased and bent against God in our lives and cut off from relationship with him. And he says that's in the flesh here, uh, which includes not just like your uh, licentious and lustful habits. It, uh, it also includes what people do that's uh, moral and noble done independently of God. So it's Jekyll and Hyde that are described by the flesh. It's your good parts that you like about you as well as your bad parts that you wish you could change. All of that is the flesh. So like for Paul, the flesh for him was extremely religious and moral. He was a very observant Jewish man, very serious about keeping God's law, 
very serious about his religious observances. And yet when he became a Christian, he realized that all of that was a complex of a personality uh, in a life independent of God, not one dependent on God's grace and mercy. So he says here in verse seven and eight that um, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's describing our natural inability to fix ourselves or to right our relationship with God. Uh, what's broken in us is not fixable by us. And most people don't feel themselves to be hostile to God or unable to keep his law. But the way God describes himself and his law, none of us is able to keep his law naturally uh, because we're shot through with all sorts of motives that are something other than deep, total, constant, permanent love for God and love for other people, where we uh, consider his will instead of our own and we consider other people more important than ourselves. This is not something we are able to do, even though we're commanded to do it. We're not able to do it. It doesn't mean that people who aren't Christians are less intelligent or less moral than people who are Christians. You know good and well that's not true. Uh, but it does mean that when who we are by nature, we're not able to be in a relationship with God that pleases him. Uh, we're not able to get into a relationship with God that pleases him except by a gift of his supernatural work. Right? So uh, we do what we do by nature. We're biased against God. Like the, uh, remember the story of the scorpion and the turtle? The uh, scorpion was asking the turtle for a ride on his back to get across the river. And the turtle was like, yeah, no, I don't think so because you'll sting me and uh, you'll kill me. And the scorpion says, well, I won't see because if I kill you, I'll drown too. Uh, so I need you to live so that I can get across the river. So you'll be safe. And so the turtle lets the scorpion on and they start across the river and the scorpion stings the turtle. And the turtle says, what are you doing? You're killing us both. And the scorpion says, I can't help it. It is my nature. And Paul says that this is uh, how we are. It is our nature to live independent of God, to live fundamentally rebellious against our creator. But a Christian, he says, is changed. That our nature is changed. We're taken out of uh, the world of the flesh and put in the world of the spirit. I don't mean like out of the physical world and into the ethereal, nebulous spiritual world. I mean out of rebellion against God into a relationship that's healed with God. Um, there's no dualism that says the body's evil and the spirit's good and and what we're longing for as Christians is to escape this terrible old body and evacuate with our spirits to heaven. Uh, that's not our hope. Our hope is that our bodies will be resurrected, that Jesus came to fix everything that was broken by our being in the flesh and rebellion against him. Everything we ruined, he's going to fix, including our bodies, just like he did Jesus's. But he says we're new. Like in our gospel reading today, where uh, Nicodemus, the religious leader, was told that unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and he didn't understand that, but said, you, you have to become a new person. You just, you can't fix up who you are uh, by nature, shine it up enough for God to be okay with you. 
you have to be made completely new. Uh, Jesus used the term, you have to be born from above or born again uh, to enter the kingdom of God, to be in a relationship with God again. You have to be given new life that only Jesus Christ can provide for you. And that's what we've been given. The, the Old Testament reading in Ezekiel said that uh, God promises, I'll take away your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And that's another way of describing what it means to become a Christian, to be changed in this way. So now the Holy Spirit lives in you, he says in verse 9. Uh, he dwells in you, and it kind of sounds like Exodus language from the Old Testament. You know, where when the children of Israel were um, in the wilderness, between the time they came out of Egypt and out of slavery and before they entered the Promised Land, God was present with them in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to shield them. But his presence was visible with them. Uh, and his, that cloud of, of God's presence uh, came down and would rest in the holy place of the tabernacle uh, until the temple was built. And then the, the glory of God uh, came and rested in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. This was God's presence with his people. In the same sense, Christians experience the presence of God and his Holy Spirit uh, individually as well as as a church. Right? That we are called as a church and as individual Christians the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God dwells in us in the way that he dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. And so we find ourselves to be like them. We're pilgrims on our way to our true home in the new creation. Um, after Jesus comes back and finally sets the world to rights, that we'll live with him, resurrected bodies, in a world that works right. Again, our true home, the true promised land. And so our lives now are uh, unstable because we are not home yet and we're not fixed yet. And so we're on a pilgrimage to get home and the Holy Spirit is in a process of changing us and shaping us and fitting us for our new home as we go. Uh, that's like the true story of our lives as Christians now is that we're pilgrims passing through on our way home to the new creation, the real world. And it's a, it's a weird way to think about your life. It makes you not normal in any sense anymore because every normal thing in your life is colored and haunted by this idea that the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's like the Israelites, you could look up every day and see the pillar of fire and you realize, man, I'm not in Kansas or Egypt anymore. Um, a lot of my life is the same. I'm still a parent, you know, I still work, but it's all different in light of this wild cloud and fire here. I'm, my whole identity and reason for being is shaped by the presence of God here and what his mission is and what his agenda is and my pilgrimage with him. Now that's who I am and that's the story of my life. And I, I feel normal sometimes, but man, when I really read what he's saying here, I'm not normal anymore. My life is kind of crazy now as a Christian. But the promise is in verse 10 and 11 that the goal is certain that assures Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will be raised as well. Um, what you've set your goal on is real and it's gonna happen. You will be resurrected. You will live with Jesus in the new creation. So does this kind of uh, uh, experience of God feel like 
what goes on in your life. I mean, one of the, one of the benefits of being forgiven by God and brought home to him is supposed to be uh, what our confession of faith calls joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, like he says in verse 6 here, a life of life and peace, a life that leads to life and to sh not peace, peace in the broad sense, shalom, right with God and things being the way they're supposed to be in the world. Um, that is that your experience, that you experience joy in a relationship with God as you more and more live as this new person that you're created to be? Does that sound like your experience as a Christian? I'm guessing that most of you would say not very often, if at all. Uh, feels like a benefit of the Christian life that we're missing out on somehow because we're not uh, living into this reality very well. I mean, because when I, when I think about somebody who's actually experiencing joy in the Holy Spirit, whose life feels haunted by God, like there's a pillar of fire following them around, where they see everything they're doing in light of who God is and in light of what he's doing in their life and what he's doing in the world and his mission and our future, that sounds like a super spiritual person. Now, that sounds like some kind of super Christian, maybe a monk, uh, uh, maybe a missionary, I don't know, but not like a normal person that, that just does normal things day to day in their life. Uh, it sounds like melodramatic. And when I'm around people that, seem to be experiencing life that way, I tend to think, I tend not to trust them. <laughs> I think that they're overselling uh, the depth of their experience that they're having with God. Um, because I think real Christians deal with a conscience that makes them struggle a lot with doubt. Um, where you think, boy, the contrast between who I want to be and who I'm told I'm going to be and who I am day to day seems awfully stark and I don't seem much like this true spiritual version of myself that I'm going to be one day in the new creation. Uh, I feel pretty much like I always have felt and so I wonder um, if there's reality to this. I, I certainly am not feeling joy in the Holy Spirit very often with this kind of assurance and my partial obedience and partial change in my life that's happened since I've been a Christian, um, instead of encouraging me, it discourages me because I think it's still only partial. And like partial change feels like fake change to me. Um, and so I struggle. I think most Christians do struggle with assurance because of this. And you think, and also I'm decaying and dying and all the promises about life and Jesus and resurrection, you know, they sound nice, but they sound uh, pretty non-concrete. Like those are matters of faith because when I die, I look like a non-Christian who dies and my body rots just like theirs in the grave. And uh, so this hope of the resurrection and this hope of being a new person and a new life often doesn't feel very concrete or real to me. And so struggle with doubt. But the truth is, as Paul emphasizes here, is that as a Christian, you're really not the same as you were. You're really not the same as you were. Your troubled conscience is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, right? There are things you could have ignored easily before, but now you're troubled by them 
uh, because the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Before, you, it was very hard to connect the idea that you could be really happy in life by obeying God and submitting to Him. That sounded like a diminishment and a restriction of your life. And you're just like, I don't want to make God mad, but I need to do these things that are going to make me happy and rich and comfortable so I'll have a good life. And now as a Christian, you're like, wow, sin, I can't connect a life of happiness to rebellion and sin anymore. Like even when I sin, I can't hardly enjoy it anymore. Right? Because there is something different in me. The Holy Spirit really is in me. And I can't find delight in rebellion against God anymore. Even when I try to, it just doesn't work like it did, which is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in me and in you. Right? And partial change in a Christian's life is change. And that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So, you know, like in Galatians, Paul says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goes on. These are things that start growing in your life that don't seem natural to you uh, because the Holy Spirit is present in your life. But in this life, to become more patient, for instance, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is not to never struggle with impatience anymore, but it's to become less impatient. And just to be less impatient is not very inspiring, and it doesn't feel very holy, but it's the process, right? It means that you are being changed by the Holy Spirit, and it's frustrating not to be more patient now already, but change is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Partial change is not a sign that you're defective as a Christian. So this passage is not written so that you will doubt yourself more. All right? Uh, it's not written so you'll think, gosh, I guess I'm not putting to death the deeds of the body enough. I'm not setting my mind on the Spirit enough, so I'm probably not really a Christian. This passage is written so you'll know you are a Christian, so you'll feel confident that what Jesus did is enough to fix you and bring you home to God. I mean, the, the thing that you should worry about with assurance is an indifferent conscience. If you don't care about sin, if you don't care about what God thinks about what your life is and what you're doing, that's scary. Um, a guilty conscience is not scary. A guilty conscience means, oh, you're under the influence, right? The Holy Spirit's at work in you. So don't misconstrue that. You're not who you were. Um, your normal has changed. Your identity has changed. It's like you wake up in the morning every day and the big pillar of fire is there in front of you. Um, and so that's the indicative. Learning to live into that is the trick, but that's the indicative. That's the truth of what's real. So what's the imperative? The imperative then, uh, as Paul says it you know, negatively here, is you put to death the deeds of the old you. Put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh. Uh, don't put to death who you used to be and live as who you're going to be. The positive side is live as the future you. This is who you're going to be uh, because of the work of Jesus in your life. Uh, you're not obligated anymore. You're not enslaved anymore. Even though you may feel enslaved at times, it's not true. The Holy Spirit lives in you and you are different now. And sin is not the boss of you anymore uh, in the way that it used to be. So for Paul, that meant that he was free for the first time of self-righteous pride that had defined and driven his life before he was a Christian. 
his condescending, uh, supercilious attitude uh, towards people he considered to be his moral and spiritual lessers finally could die. And he lived increasingly free from that when he became a Christian because he didn't have to live as the old man anymore. Uh, for you, it may be something like this. You don't have to live in a panic over money anymore because you're not living a life where you have to get money to protect yourself and make you happy because your life is about something else now. Money becomes a tool, not a slave master now. And increasingly you can experience that freedom uh, by learning how to give your money away and learning how uh, to trust God to provide for you and to learn to live with less anxiety about money partially as you go along the Christian life. The Holy Spirit can do this in your life. You can become uh, free from a life of uh, pressure to compare yourself to the people around you constantly, uh, to wonder how you measure up and whether you can validate yourself. You can live free of this in a way that you couldn't before. Or the brutal selfishness of most of our lives uh, can really be changed. You can see God increasingly turning your heart out towards other people to serve and love them and even people that can't do anything for you uh, even like in the church's uh, corporal works of mercy where we reach out to try to lend relief and help to people who are crushed under life's burdens for me you know to move out of the old life and into the new life and have influence the holy spirit means that um I don't, I don't have to live angry anymore, and I don't have to live as angry as I have been. And I still am pretty angry, but I'm not as angry as I was. Should I look at my remaining anger and say, I'm a fake Christian that's not real? Or should I say, how do people like me get less angry? Usually that trajectory gets worse as you get older. Maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something in my life. I think that's the right conclusion to draw, right? Um, not as judgmental as I used to be. I'm not as addicted as I used to be. And these are things that are encouraging if partial changes uh, because I'm not who I was and I don't have to live uh, as the old person anymore. I can live as the future me. And so what we're doing as Christians is like we're, uh, we're practicing for the new life. We're practicing for our future. Like I noticed when uh, high school ballplayers go on recruiting visits to universities, they'll always give them a uniform to put on and take their picture, All right, Here's a picture of you in this uniform because you think, wow, I could see myself uh, living uh, this life, being on this team, wearing these colors. And uh, it's just sort of a glimpse into the future for them. They're, they're uh, trying on this new identity. And as Christians, that's what we're doing in our lives all the time. We're practicing for the resurrection. We're practicing living as these new people that God is making us out to be. Uh, the people will be when we're finally home. And uh, our lives now, it's not that we have to do that perfectly or we'll never get home. The idea is that Jesus is certainly bringing us home. That's the imperative. The Holy Spirit is here to, to bring us home, to change us, to fit us. But our lives now uh, are lived practicing for that. Uh, pushing back against the things that are broken by our rebellion against God and our insistence that we can live independently of Him. Uh, and the ways we've broken the world through that, that we live now trying to remediate those things, uh, to push back, to 
to test out what relationships based on love and service look like rather than uh, power and oppression look like. And, you know, all the other things that Jesus gives us to pursue as our true humanness in life. So here's the thing. Um, a lot of the Christian life is saying no. It's saying no to who we used to be. It's saying no to what we still want to do. Sometimes it's, it's saying no to old habits that run really deep. It's saying no a lot. It's mortifying, putting to death the deeds of the body, or as the Puritans used to say, the mortification of sin. And the mortification of sin is hard, and it's negative, and it involves saying no. But the process of mortifying sin is not supposed to undo our assurance. The idea uh, in the Christian good news is not if you can mortify sin enough, then you can be assured that God loves you. That's putting the imperative before the indicative. The logic of the gospel is because you have assurance, because you are loved and accepted and guaranteed that you will be brought home, therefore you can begin to live out and mortify sin, put to death uh, the old ways and the old habit. Um, because you feel assurance, you can put the flesh to death. That's the Christian logic. Well, that's the information, right? That's the information. You've got the indicative, the imperative. Uh, the Holy Spirit's in you. You're guaranteed to be brought home. There's no condemnation for you anymore. Uh, therefore, you should begin to live as the future you. That's the imperative. But that's information in your head. That's not experience in your life. Uh, the challenge for us is to steepen this. Uh, to become convinced in our minds and in our hearts that this is actually true. Uh, to let it sink in and change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about God and our relationship with him. To let it seep in until we can almost see the pillar of fire and the cloud by day. Uh, that the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives um, is just part of reality for us and the way we look at it, that we have to steepen it long enough for that to happen. Um, steepen it long enough to see how crazy the change in us is. Even though we don't feel that different that much and want to feel normal a lot of times in the world, to realize as a Christian, you're just not, because this isn't home anymore, and this isn't my country anymore, and I'm not who I used to be anymore. And what Jesus has done has changed normal forever for me. To steepen it until you feel that, right? And to steepen this until you feel that God himself is actually pleased to come live with you because he wants to be with you and he wants to bring you home to him. That's the good news. That's our assurance. Uh, it's not going to come easy to us because it's so unlike the way we usually think. But Paul says this is true about us. Uh, it's the truth about our future and that we can steep in it and experience joy in the Holy Spirit, believing it now. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the encouragement that you give us in this text, uh, for sending us the Holy Spirit to live in us. Thank you for Paul with all of his complicated arguments and how kind you are uh, to let us know you better through what he's written. Uh, we pray, Lord, that these things would not just be in our heads, but that they would go down to our hearts so that we'd feel your love for us and that we'd feel your work in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.